from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is cancelled. For the law produces wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all in God's sight. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He believed in God, who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Against hope, with hope he believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, without weakening in the faith. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, because he was fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And now from Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He was openly talking about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Okay, so now, my lounge room's uh, Apple TV. I don't know if you have an Apple TV device and you've noticed that uh, they have screensavers on them. And these screensavers have had an unusual effect on me recently because when the screensaver comes on, it usually plays videos taken from aerial drones flying over cities and other landscapes, which are lovely, absolutely. But lately, it has interspersed video taken from satellites orbiting the Earth, like this one. 
This is coming over the Indian Ocean towards Perth, Australia. Now, these high views from a low Earth orbit, occasionally they give me the sensation that I can just step out and fall to the Earth, which, of course, you can't do. And my past experiences jumping out of a plane have certainly let me know that that is not a pleasant experience at all. So don't do it. But the sensation is there when you see this video, or at least maybe it's just me. Well, Edgar Mitchell, the, an Apollo 14 astronaut and the sixth person to walk on the moon in 1971, he's often credited with bringing widespread attention to the overview effect. Now, one of the most iconic photos often associated with capturing the essence of the overview effect is this one, which is called Earthrise. This famous photograph was taken by astronaut William and Anders on December 24, 1968, during the Apollo 8 mission, humanity's first manned mission to orbit the moon. Now, the photo shows Earth peeking out from beyond the lunar surface as the spacecraft orbited the moon, and it highlights the planet's fragility and isolation in the vast expanse of space. The overview effect is a cognitive shift in awareness reported by some astronauts during spaceflight, often while viewing the Earth from orbit or from the lunar surface. It refers to the experience of seeing firsthand the reality of the Earth in space, which is immediately perceived as a tiny, fragile ball of life, hanging in the void, shielded and nourished by a paper-thin atmosphere. From this perspective, National boundaries vanish, the conflicts that divide people become less important, and the need to create a society with the united will to protect this pale blue dot becomes both obvious and imperative. In short, seeing the Earth from a high orbit creates the overview effect, which gives astronaut the sensation that life is more beautiful and more meaningful than they once assumed. Now, astronauts often begin life as scientists, doctors, and engineers, the types of professions one might expect to be filled with materialists. But I wager the overview effect just might make them wonder if life is more than merely material, always explainable by natural causes. Perhaps there is meaning and purpose after all in this seemingly chaotic and random universe. Well, Thomas the Apostle had a similar worldview-shattering moment when he encountered the risen Christ. After his resurrection, Jesus was, for all intents and purposes, the same God-made flesh he was before, but his body had been renewed. Jesus transcended the merely physical to present as fully human, both materially and spiritually at the same time. Now, quantum mechanics, too, teaches us there is far more going on than we could ever have imagined. And we are far from making sense of new discoveries in that field. What we are learning is the material world is not all there is. There is a spiritual dimension alongside in fact, if the scriptures tell us anything, it is that the material world is upheld 
by the spiritual world. So in this sermon series, The Balanced Christian Life, so far we have learned the contemplative tradition is a steady gaze with the soul upon the God who loves us, thus developing a prayer-filled life. The holiness tradition focuses upon the inward reformation of the heart through the development of virtues, being holy habits. Well, the charismatic tradition focuses on the power of God's spirit moving in and through us. Where the holiness tradition centers upon the power to be, the charismatic tradition centers upon the power to do. It focuses upon the attention of the friend of Jesus toward a spirit-empowered life through the gift of the spirit in the nurturing fruit of the spirit. The charismatic tradition addresses the deep yearning for the intimacy and immediacy of God's presence among his people. Just as a car requires fuel to run and our bodies require fuel for survival, so our souls rely upon the Spirit of God for spiritual energy. Through the Spirit, we are able to do more than we could on our own by our own power. And these abilities not only remind us of God's presence, but equip us to build up our community of faith in love. So how then do the friends of Jesus train for a Spirit-empowered life? Well, a good place to start is by following the example of Paul the Apostle, who wrote, Be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. See, Paul the Apostle was one of the first evangelists, making converts and establishing churches around the Mediterranean, but he ably balanced the rational with the spiritual sides of the Christian faith and practice. When we piece together the biblical testimony, we know Paul was raised in Tarsus, a city that combined the influences of Athens and Rome. He was a citizen of Rome, which is why he had the Roman name Paul, but Paul was very much a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is why he had the Jewish name Saul. So don't get confused when you read his stories. Paul was an exceptional student. He was sent to Jerusalem to stunder under Gamaliel, a leading teacher of his time. Paul quickly rose the ranks, which is why we first meet him at the execution of Stephen. He not only approved the murder, but guarded the coats of the killers. Perhaps to impress Israel's ruling leaders, Paul uh, went so far as to take a leadership role in the persecution that followed Stephen's execution. This led to his conversion on the road to Damascus. Commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul began declaring the good news about Jesus in the synagogues, proving that Jesus was and is the Messiah. Now, we do not know for how long Paul's initial preaching lasted, but we do know he went into the deserts of Arabia for three years. This was a period of solitude and meditation for Paul, during which he insisted he received his gospel message. He then spent some time in Damascus, then in Jerusalem with Peter and James, before returning to his hometown of Tarsus. Paul spent about a decade 
in Tarsus until he was called to Antioch. And then his story really starts to take on some momentum. See, when persecution scattered the early friends of Jesus from Jerusalem, evangelistic fervor broke out in Antioch and spilled over into the Gentile population. Barnabas, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, was sent to oversee the new faith community. He called Paul to join him, and the two worked together on this mission field for a full year. And we can see the work of the Spirit, not only in Paul's conversion, in his powerful preaching, and his solitude in the Arabian desert. Paul's story as a whole is a representation of the charismatic tradition, and it comes out more fully in the acts of the Spirit surrounding his missionary journeys. And I'm going to highlight just a few examples. While the leaders of the church at Antioch were, quote, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Clearly, it was the Holy Spirit in charge of this effort. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, we have recorded. Paul and his team traveled then to the island of Cyprus, and they had extraordinary results there. They were invited to speak to the governor, but a local magician by the name of Elymas tried to stop them. It was written, but Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind for a while, unable to see the sun. See, in all this time, the apostle learned through experience and time, that when he spoke, God spoke. He learned how to discern the movements of the Spirit and how to work in cooperation with those movements. Paul's was a Spirit-empowered life. Paul and his team then ended up in Philippi, but this journey itself was directed by the Spirit along the way. See, when the apostle tried to go north, He was hindered on two separate occasions. First, the team was, and I quote, forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then when they tried to go into into Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So the Spirit doesn't just open doors. The Spirit also closed doors. And we see this for Paul. Notice they were, uh, instead of going north, following the guiding of the Spirit, they then traveled west until Troas, where they awaited further guidance. And in that place, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Notice, they were given a region to work in, but not a specific city. So they used their common sense to choose Philippi. Paul and his team eventually spent extensive time in Ephesus. He began his work there by laying hands on some converts at which the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. Throughout this ministry, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought back to the sick, their diseases left them. The evil spirits came out of them. Such power encounters were frequent occurrences throughout the apostles' ministry. 
Paul knew how to exercise spiritual authority. He knew the work of God was a work of the Spirit. This is the charismatic tradition at its finest. So seeking to follow a Spirit-empowered life has created within the church a charismatic tradition. The third historical movement I'm describing for you in this sermon series, The Balanced Christian Life. Now, full transparency for this series, I am relying on the writings of Richard Foster, most especially his book, Streams of Living Water. Again, I highly recommend you read not just this book, but any of his books. He's awesome and very insightful and very accessible. From its very earliest days, there have been many individuals and movements within the church that have sought the power of God's Spirit moving in and through them. Again, as I've said before, just as a car requires fuel to run, we need the Spirit of God for spiritual energy. And in the pages of history, we find many examples following the charismatic tradition. There is John Wimber, you may have heard of him, a professional musician and founding member of the Righteous Brothers, an American rock group. His baptism by the Holy Spirit about a year after his conversion propelled him into the worldwide Christian community where he became known as an evangelist, pastor, Bible teacher, composer, founder of the Vineyard Movement, and a conduit for the power of the Holy Spirit. When this gentle giant prayed, things happened, and observers caught a glimpse of what could happen when someone wholeheartedly became, as John himself put it, a fool for Christ. Then we have Sundar Singh, who was born into a wealthy Sikh family. He was expected to become a sadhu, which is an Indian holy man. But after a dramatic vision, he became a Christian. He adopted the dress of the sadhu and traveled throughout India and beyond, preaching the gospel to huge audiences, trying to live as Christ did, and experiencing many visions and miracles. At the feet of the master is his best-known written work in the West. Then we have Demos Shakarian, who was descended from Armenian Christians and was filled with the Holy Spirit at age 13 in his home church in Los Angeles. Demos worked as a dairyman for 25 years before he started the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International, which is a mouthful of a name. From a group of 21 people meeting during lunch in a room over a cafeteria in 1951, this organization grew to over 1,700 chapters worldwide and reaching 1 billion people yearly with the gospel. Then there's Seraphim of Savrov, or Serov, sorry. He was an ascetic monk from Kursk, which is south of Moscow in Russia. In Russia. He loved solitude, yet seemed to live with one foot in the natural world and one foot in the supernatural. Seraphim radiated joy. He made friends with God's creatures. He detached himself from the world. He eased souls into serenity, devotedly gave to charity, and periodically saw visions. He was possibly the most luminous and winsome figure of recent Russian Orthodoxy. And then we have finally Evan John Roberts. He had six years of formal education, 12 years of working in mines, and two years as a blacksmith's apprentice 
before becoming the unlikely leader of the 1904 to 1908 revival in Wales. At age 26, Roberts felt called to the ministry, and between his acceptance and his entry into the minister's training college, he was visited by God nightly. While on retreat, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and commissioned to preach Jesus Christ. People spontaneously responded to his first efforts, and a revival spread throughout all of Wales and into northern England. And there are many more examples of spiritual giants and ordinary saints who discovered in many and varied ways that through the Holy Spirit, we are able to do more than we can on our own. And these abilities not only remind us of God's presence, but they equip us to build up our communities in love. The overflow of their empowered lives was loving action for their neighbors and changing the systems around them. The testimony of Scripture and personal experience confirms that we were never created to live our lives under our own steam. We were created to live in cooperation with another reality. We were created for life in and through the Spirit of God. Every friend of Jesus is endowed by the Spirit with the specific gifts for specific purposes. And these are not the same as natural talents, though sometimes they fit together with them. The sign and presence of the gifts of the Spirit in a person's life is that when the effect of his or her actions greatly exceeds their input, there is the Spirit. It is a work of the Spirit when the outcome of our efforts far exceeds expectations. Paul the Apostle wrote most on the subject of spiritual gifts in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and especially 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. He described the gifts of leadership, ecstatic gifts, and gifts that build community life. We must always remember this threefold function of spiritual gifts leadership, ecstatic gifts, as well as building community life. Any efforts to restrict the work of the Spirit to one of the three only simply misses the point. It's also worth mentioning that the ecstatic gifts, such as speaking in tongues, the discernment of spirits, and prophecy, they are most often given to show us that God is present where we assume that he is not. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 describes how central divine love is to any effective functioning of spiritual gifts. And chapter 12 summarizes essential principles that we need for the exercising of spiritual gifts so that they build rather than destroy community life. So taking responsibility is the first Principle. The apostle wrote, indeed, the body is none, not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if it, the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. So from this passage, we see that every gift is needed, no matter 
how insignificant it may seem to us. We all have a responsibility to take, so let us take it and apply our gifts where we can, no matter how important or less important we think they are. And then accepting limitation is the second principle. The apostle wrote, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. So this passage describes how we are limited in the good we can accomplish by ourselves. You can be an eye and see all sorts of things, but you don't hear very well, do you? If you are an ear, you can hear all sorts of wondrous sounds, but you don't see much and you don't feel much. Indeed, we have limitations. Our gifts provide those limitations so that we will work together. And working together, we encounter and experience and accomplish so much more. We are limited in the good we can accomplish by ourselves. And this is a divinely imposed limitation in order to defeat our egoism, our self-centeredness. We work together. Esteeming others is the third principle. The apostle wrote, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect. This passage describes how any proper exercise of the gifts of the spirit is a joint effort. God has arranged the functioning of the gifts so that we will always be dependent upon one another and always esteem each other in the gifts that we bring and the wisdom and insight that we gain from those gifts. Then maintaining unity within diversity is the fourth principle. So that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it, Paul wrote. See, we're all different personalities, and we exercise different gifts. We still function as a whole. We are inseparably linked together, suffering together and rejoicing together. So let us apply our gifts together when they are called upon and needed. Spiritual gifts are given to build us up as a community of faith, which is why Paul sets divine love at the center of his teaching on the gifts of the Spirit. For love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endure all things. Love never ends. Can we do that for each other? It doesn't matter what gift you have. If you do not have love, it is worth nothing. Paul placed love at the very center. There should be our focus. How much better is it to move day by day in joyful surrender to the leading of the Spirit, in which the soul, light as a feather, fluid as water, innocent as a child, responds to every movement of grace like a floating balloon? We experience the charismatic tradition in many different ways, 
and through many different venues. Here are a few suggestions for fostering spirit-empowered living. Let's start near by drawing near to those who have some history and experience in this area of life and learn from them. In Quaker churches, no one speaks in a gathering for worship until they feel led by the Spirit. What a wonderful experience uh, that would be. Perhaps not enough musical for us, but maybe we should go to a Quaker church sometime just to feel that and be present. Or you might perhaps invite someone to lay hands upon you and pray for you to enter more of the life and joy of the Spirit. You can deepen your experience of charismatic worship by attending services known for their strength in this area. Some people have more experience with this tradition, so draw near to them and to listen to them. Learn from the history of those in the charismatic tradition and practice some of those things now. Another point we can learn from is to rest easy with your fears that some aspect of what you are doing is in the flesh. See, God can still use us in our fumbling ways. We should not be afraid to step out and exercise the gifts we feel God has given us and to do so even though we know we will not be totally free from our fallenness. God will receive us fallenness and all, and teach us how to walk more and more in the power of the Spirit. So rest easy that, yes, whatever you are doing and how you're trying to exercise your gifts will always fall short of perfection. But we are not perfect. We are on the way. Just practice your gifts and grow in them. Another point to learn from is to follow your leadings without fear of being misled. If your spirit is teachable, God will show you the way. Press in where you feel the need for more, especially in the area of spiritual gifts. More love, more power, more grace, more gifting. Paul himself urges us to desire the greater gift. That is okay. Press in. Do not fear being misled if you are truly and intentionally and with integrity seeking the indwelling and the leading of the Spirit. And the final point I'll highlight for us today is to regularly test your leadings and experiences in the Spirit with those you trust. Allow their spiritual discernment to encourage, to correct, and to refine you because not everything we think is a move of the Spirit is. We learn that and we identify it, we evaluate and we test it together because our blinders are often on. We need other people to speak into our life, to encourage us, but also to correct us and even to point us in the right direction. But also, do the same for others. In this way, you will fulfill the apostle of the Spirit's encouragement when he wrote, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Helping each other to move in and through the power of the Spirit builds up the church. So let us encourage and equip, correct and refine each other in this area of our spiritual life. The spirit-empowered life is a life immersed in, empowered by, and under the direction of the Spirit of God. We should explore it because through it, we are empowered by God to do his work and evince his life upon the earth. 
Through the Spirit, we are able to do more than we can on our own. And these abilities not only remind us of God's presence, but they equip us to build up our community in love. So let us therefore follow the example of Paul the Apostle and the example of saints that have gone before us in the charismatic tradition, that the Holy Spirit might make us more like Christ to will and to act in accordance with God's will for us. And may we always remember, Jesus said, the one who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. The spirit-empowered life of the charismatic tradition overflows. So may we know such movements of the spirit upon our lives that we are enabled to say, my soul was then satisfied. Let us pray. Almighty God, we seek in this place the presence of your spirit. We know the spirit is here. It is us limiting our encounter. So open our eyes, open our ears, open our spirits to know you directly and to know your power that transforms us, that purifies us, that corrects us, but also guides us. We want that leading, Holy Spirit. We want that power, Holy Spirit. We want to be your people in this world, and we know we can do so much more on our own. So be in us and with us and radiate from within us outward that the world may look at us and see not us and our efforts, but instead see your power and your glory at work in the world. Pray these things in Jesus' name.